Well, <clears throat> welcome back. Um, we were talking at lunch as to what, what is a good lunch. I hope you had a good lunch, but I hope you, don't ha you didn't have too good a lunch, because if you had wine and a soup and a meal and a pudding and cheese and coffee and chocolate and heaven knows what else, you'll be feeling very comfortable at the moment, and that means that you may be nodding off the lecture spot after lunch is always the, 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 the one that everyone, uh, lecturers want to avoid. <clears throat> so I hope you did have a good lunch. <clears throat> um, our subject this afternoon is aesthetics. And aesthetics is a branch of philosophy. It's a sub-discipline of philosophy. And I'm not a philosopher, so you wouldn't expect me to talk to you about philosophy. I'm talking about aesthetics from the point of view of an art historian, in other words, putting aesthetics in its historical context. Because having read a little bit about um, aesthetics, Kant and Hegel, as well as Plato and Aristotle, I realize how profoundly philosophers have formed our attitudes to art with a capital A and the fine arts in, um, in particular. We can't really understand our own thoughts until we have understood what the philosophers have said about it. And this goes for the practicing fine artists. A lot of the things which they think they should be doing, they think that because the philosophers have told them that that's what they are doing. And so we're in a circle. Um, philosophers make things up, if I can put it that way and then fine artists do what the philosophers tell them. So, um, the division was most clearly made by Hegel in his lectures on aesthetics. He delivered these um, in Berlin in the 1820s. He never wrote them down, but his, there was a devoted pupil who had his lecture notes, and with his own lecture notes, they compiled a, a composite text, and this was published in 1835 as, as his Vorelesung über Ästhetik, and that was translated into French in a multiple volume publication in the 1840s, and it reached the English-speaking world in the late 19th century. Um, Hegel, in his introduction, made this division between Kunstwissenschaft, um, the science of art, and the philosophy of the beautiful. He said, on the one hand, we see a science of art only busying itself with actual works of art from the outside, arranging them in a history of art. That's what I tend to do. On the other hand, we see science abandoning itself on its own account to reflections on the beautiful and producing only something universal, irrelevant to the work of art in its peculiarity, in short, an abstract philosophy of the beautiful. It's this second abstract philosophy of the beautiful which is aesthetics. And you see what Hegel said about it, it's irrelevant to the work of art in its peculiarity. I find it very difficult to talk about works of art other than in particulars. <clears throat> and I want to share with you a, a, a memory I have going back 10 years <clears throat> about an experience of the beautiful. And I'm telling you this story to suggest that an abstract philosophy of the beautiful is actually a very tricky thing to, to write. Um, 
I, I listened to a radio report on the news of four uh, oarsmen who were trying to row across the Atlantic. They were trying to break a record of 55 days that had been set by Norwegian rowers in the late 19th century for crossing the Atlantic, I think from Newfoundland to um, Great Britain. <clears throat> and they had rowed for 39 days and they were struck by a terrible storm and then a huge wave came and broke their boat in two and they were plunged in the water and they clambered onto a life raft and they were perilously exposed. <clears throat> 350 miles from the shore, in a storm cross sea, they must have been very cold, um, hungry, uh, thirsty, very frightened. And this is the report from a, one of the survivors, which I heard on the car radio, and I was so riveted by it, I pulled the car over to hear what he had to say. <clears throat> and he said, the highlight for me was the sight and sound of an RAF rimrod, nimrod flying in low across the water. I have never seen anything so beautiful in my life. Now, I can see you smiling and nodding. You know exactly what that man meant when he saw that nimrod. Um, he was hanging on to life by a thread, as we say. He saw that Nimrod and he knew he was going to live as opposed to drown and it was the most beautiful sight he'd ever seen. And if you remember those Nimrod planes, I'm afraid they no longer fly, they were converted from those Comet, Comet airliners. Um, the first commercial jet air, airliners, first designed in the 1940s. So they were very old um, airframes and they had that bulbous nose um, added to them for their radar equipment. They weren't beautiful aircraft. If you've seen them in an air show on the tarmac, you wouldn't have picked them out as a beautiful aircraft. But we all know exactly what that survivor meant when he said it, that aircraft was the most beautiful sight he'd seen in his life. Because the beautiful is not something that can be detached from a context and still exist. It is a relationship, and it's a relationship that exists at a particular time and place. And at that time and place, that was beautiful in a different context, it would not have been beautiful. So to construct an abstract philosophy of the beautiful, I think, is a challenge for the philosophers. <clears throat> now, my other guide um, in this um, talk, <coughs> investigating aesthetics, comes from a, a philosopher, R.G. Collingwood, um, who some of you know because you have read his Principles of Art, um, a book published in the 1930s and kept in print by Oxford University Press ever since. And in my book, I suggest that this is the book that um, Gombrich was alluding to without saying, any, without saying so when he opened the story of art with the sentence, there really is no such thing as art. Because Collingwood, in his Principles of Art, distinguished an art proper, to use his phrase, from everything else. And he devised the label craft to distinguish art proper from everything else. And the art proper is what Gombrich um, later chose to describe as art with a capital A, which he says has no existence. Um, so I'm not, in, uh, I'm not a supporter of Collingwood's philosophy of art. I'm, I favor Gombrich rather than Collingwood. But uh, he's also a historian of history. 
And this is a, a statement that he made in his autobiography, which I have found the most useful statement ever made by a philosopher about history. <clears throat> I, I live by it. <clears throat> um, Collingwood wrote, <clears throat> You cannot find out what a man means by simply studying his spoken or written statements. You must also know what the question was, a question in his own mind, and presumed by him to be in yours, to which the thing he has said or written was meant as an answer. Now, that is a profoundly helpful statement, I, I think. You can apply it to any historical document. You can certainly um, apply it to the Bible. Um, in fact, I was introduced to this statement by a wonderful scholar of the New Testament, um, Canon John Fenton, um, who wanted to explain why Mark's Gospel began with the baptism of Christ by St. John the Baptist. And he said, if you think it's just history, in other words, you put it in the category of true or false, um, you'll think that that's just what happened. But if you think of it as a problem which needed a solution, the problem was that why did Jesus need to be baptized by St. John the Baptist? And this probably was an embarrassment to the first Christians, because why would the Son of God need that introduction? And so it needed to be dealt with. That was the problem for which the introduction to um, Mark's Gospel was a solution, and then you can trace it in the other Gospels and how they dealt with the same problem. So when I'm looking at these philosophers writing about beauty and art, I'm going to try and um, recover what the problem was which their statements are a solution for. <clears throat> so this is a talk about texts, books. Um, philosophers deal with words <coughs> rather than images. Um, as usual, it starts with Plato and Aristotle. I'm choosing the greater Hippias, which is his um, dialogue on the beautiful. It's not a particularly popular dialogue, but I think um, it's important. Um, Aristotle's um, poetics are a response to Plato. Um, so much of what Aristotle says is his comment on Plato. Um, we're jumping through the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. Cennino Cennini wrote a, a very well-known book on um, painting. He gives you the technique of tempera and fresco, the practicalities of it. <coughs> then a very important book, Longinus on the Sublime, written in late antiquity, um, but largely ignored, as far as I know, throughout the Middle Ages, and it really hit the big time when it was translated into French in 1674, and aesthetics, I think, begins with the response to Longinus on the Sublime. <coughs> Roger de Pille um, clearly had read Longinus in, in French translation, and he transferred Longinus's views to painting. <coughs> and introduced, amongst other things, the modern notion of genius. It wasn't around before the late 1600s. <clears throat> um, Baumgarten, Alexander Baumgarten, introduced the word aesthetics to philosophy. Um, I think he also is responding to Longinus, and he came up with the word aesthetica for his unfinished book. Um, what he wrote um, isn't that significant for modern philosophers, <clears throat> but it was picked up on by Immanuel Kant, and the Critique of Judgment is the key text for understanding what um, philosophers say about um, visual art, though Kant is more addressing matters of beauty than visual art. Um, Winkelmann, <clears throat> in between the two, 
Um, he wrote this very influential history of the art of antiquity, which is famous for introducing the word art, or, or rather the history of art, to a book title. Um, there was no history of art before Winkelmann wrote that book title. And when I was reading the book, I realized that it's more fundamental than that. Um, Winkelmann <coughs> uses the word art as a shorthand for the fine arts, and in particular for sculpture. And that wasn't available for Vasari in the 16th century, and it wasn't available um, for writers in the 17th and early 18th century. Winkelmann gives us the word art as a shorthand for sculpture and the visual arts. <coughs> um, in the early 19th century, Hegel, we've already mentioned, his lectures on aesthetics hugely important. Um, as a German Romantic philosopher, he writes quite clearly, or at least, um, the lecture notes that were written up by his devoted pupil are quite easy to read, but they are prolix. Um, there's an awful lot of them, and um, you feel a little bit worn down by the time you got to the end of the two modern English volumes. <clears throat> and lastly, of course, we have Collingwood, who provides a, a modern digest to aesthetics in his Principles of Art, um, depending very much on Canton Hegel and other philosophers who've written in between. So those are our references. <clears throat> Starting with Greater Hippias. Now, this image clearly is um, Albrecht Dürer's wonderful engraving of Melancholia. Melancholia I, he called it, um, 1514. Um, and this is a particular work of art. It's a great work of art, but we're not going to look at it as a work of art because we are studying aesthetics this afternoon, in this lecture at any rate. We're looking at it as an illustration of a philosoph philosophical text. Because when I was reading um, Hippias Major, Greater Hippias, Plato's Dialogue, about ten years ago, I kept rem being reminded of Dürer's engraving. And it got to the point when I thought, Dürer must have read the Greater Hippias. And we had um, study days such as this um, ten years ago in this, in this department. It was to coincide with the British Museum Dürer exhibition. And I was responsible for the programming in those days, and I tried to get four speakers on Dura, couldn't get a fourth, so I put myself in for the last one. It was going to be the Joker, and I was going to tell people how I had read um, Greater Hippias with this Dura in mind, and it seemed to be illustrating the Greater Hippias, but in fact, um, it turned out that it couldn't have been. That was going to be my punchline. Uh, unfortunately, the more I got into it, the more it seemed to work. And this is dated 1514, and I discovered that Dürer's great friend, Willibald Pirkheimer, had acquired the first Greek text of Plato's complete works the previous year, 1513. And he had already got the Latin um, translation of um, Plato's complete works. And there's a table of contents in the first printed great edition of Plato's complete works. And in the table of contents, the Platonic dialogues are mentioned with their subtitles. And the subtitles is very clear. Um, Hippias Major, or Hippias Maison, et Peritoukalou, or On the Beautiful. Um, I think that um, Dürer was 
wanting to find out what the beautiful was, and this is an illustration of Plato's text. Um, the thesis was published 10 years ago in the Art Bulletin. As far as I know, no scholar has taken this on board. It's been pretty well neglected for 10 years, but no one has been able to undermine it either. So, I'm going to quickly go over um, Plato's dialogue on the beautiful and refer to the image simply as an illustration. You don't need the image clearly to understand the text and you can get the image just by googling um, Dura and Melancholia, you'll get lots of these images. Um, the narrative is set in Athens, um, late 5th century, and Hippias is the ambassador from Elis, which was the city that organized the Olympic Games. So he was a very distinguished man, and he was um, a sophist, a teacher of arete, whom the word that we are interpreting as quality. Um, this probably is an early dialogue, and... Plato is not particularly keen on it because Socrates isn't a very attractive character in this dialogue. He's openly sarcastic and he's um, mocking um, his distinguished um, visitor and um, leading him into traps and verbal tricks. It's not a very edifying spectacle. Um, for example, he, he um, mocks um, Hippias for, for charging fees to his students. Um, academics today, of course, work for free, so that's a very shocking thing to do. <clears throat> um, anyway, um, he discovers that um, Hippias has been teaching um, young men about Arete and the beautiful, and it reminds Socrates that a man had asked him what the beautiful was and he couldn't answer. So now he can ask Hippias and it'll be an easy task for Hippias to say not what is beautiful but what the beautiful is. Horti esti tokalon. Well, um, Hippias comes up with a number of examples. Um, a beautiful maiden is um, beautiful. Um, no, that won't do. That's a particular. Um, Socrates wants a universal. Um, a mare can be beautiful. A pot can be beautiful. Um, and Socrates replies to these examples, all those things are ugly compared to the gods, who are really beautiful. You have to have a definition which includes the gods. So Hippias tries gold. Gold is the beautiful. Or the appropriate is the beautiful. And... Socrates is then allowed to lose his rag, as we might say. And he says to the poor Hippias, are you not able to remember that I asked for the beautiful itself, to kalon autor, by which everything to which it is added has the property of being beautiful, both stone and stick and man and God and every act and every learning, banti matemati. For what I'm asking is this, man, what is the beautiful itself? And I cannot make you hear what I say any more than if you were a stone sitting beside me and a millstone at that, having neither ears nor brain. Now this is what um, reminded me of Dura's print, because there is a millstone. And nobody, a lot of huge literature on this print, no one has been able to explain satisfactorily what a millstone is doing there. And it's got a putto on it, it's a little child um, who could 
conceivably represent eyes and ears, his eyes don't seem to be open. So with that in mind, um, I carried on reading. Um, having given up on Hippias, Socrates then makes suggestion, suggestions as to what is beautiful. He suggests what is useful might be the beautiful. Um, rather like Vitruvius's um, definition of architecture, it has to be useful. Well, if we look at the ground surrounding this figure, this is a figure of geometry, by the way. She's holding a pair of dividers and she's got a book which is probably Euclid's Elements of Geometry. Um, around geometry's feet, you have all sorts of utensils. Um, identified have been uh, the nozzle of bellows, nails, a straight edge, sword, a plane, a molding board, pincers, inkwell with pen holder, and a hammer. Now these are all useful things. Um, Socrates then is able to demonstrate that that is not enough for us, uh, a definition of the beautiful. Then he suggests that power is the beautiful. And um, if you notice, hip, um, geometry has keys hanging from her belt and a bag of money. And there's a drawing by Dürer himself, which has keys and money, and Dürer has written against it, keys mean power, um, money means wealth. So he's illustrated power, and um, he's illustrated gold as well. Um, that won't do. Um, and then I think um, um, Perkheimer, um, who must be Dürer's translation, picked up on the um, phrase panti matemati, every learning. Um, in the Latin translation, that comes across, I think, of uh, um, the word disciplinabile. Um, I'm, I'm remembering that from, from memory, so I may not be accurate on the, on the Latin. But it's not the word mathematics. Um, the ancient Greek, mathemati, was a wider subject than just mathematics to us. But it's not in the Latin, so when he read the Greek text for the first time, the first ever publication of the Greek text, finding that word all mathematics must have been a revelation for Dürer and Perkheimer because they thought the key to beauty is in mathematics. And then he would have turned to um, an important book on mathematics by Luca Pacioli, a Franciscan um, mathematician whom he might have met in Italy when Dürer was in Italy, who, who might have taught in perspective. And Pacioli says that um, mathematics are the foundation and ladder which give access to every other science. And in the background there you can see a ladder. Um, then uh, Luca Pacioli goes on to say that um, mathematics is about number, weight, and measure. Well, you've got a, a panel of magic numbers. They're magic because they add up to 34, whichever direction you go in. You've got scales for weight, and you've got measure. This is a, a, an hourglass measuring time. Um, other applications of mathematics, um, Pacioli says, um, fire proves gold and mathematics proves the intellect. It's the testing um, discipline for the intellect. And on the left there you can see a little crucible um, of coals and a fire, a goldsmith crucible for gold. So 
That's testing um, metal, just as mathematics tests the in intellect. And so it goes on. But at the end, as always in uh, Plato's Socratic dialogues, it's inconclusive. They can't define the beautiful. And the dialogues end with um, Socrates saying, that man, and he means his daimon, his inner genius, will be very disappointed um, that we don't know what the uh, beautiful is, we can't define the beautiful. He will say, how do you know either who produced a discourse beautifully or not, or anything else whatsoever, when you are ignorant of the beautiful? And when you are in such a condition, do you think it is better for you to be alive or dead? I think Dürer must have been bitterly disappointed to reach the end of the dialogue and not to have learned what the beautiful was. And with geometry, the figure of geometry, I think he's expressing that disappointment. Socrates' disappointment, Hippias' disappointment, that they have struggled and not been able to um, come up with a definition for the beautiful itself. And it leaves us that irregular polygon, doesn't it? Now, polygons have a place in um, Plato's philosophy. If you read the, the Timaeus, which is his cosmology, um, he relates four of the five regular solids. There are only five regular solids. Four of them he relates to earth, air, fire, and water. Um, so the cube, which you see on the left here, he identifies that with earth. Um, gosh, I've forgotten what this is. Is it a... which one? Icosahedron, that'll do as far as I'm concerned. Um, that's water. Fire is whatever this one is. And the pyramid, can I call it the pyramid? Um, that is, I beg its pardon, that is air and that's fire. You can see I'm not a mathematician. But it leaves the dodecahedron. And in the Timaeus, um, Plato rather lamely suggested that the dodecahedron represents torpan, the everything. Um, and you can see how Plato thought in geometric terms. These are the ideas, the simple, regular um, shapes, which are the beautiful. And he wants to, to think of similar shapes behind the flux of appearances. But the dodecahedron is left over. Aristotle comes along and he has a different cosmology. He notes that in the world of, the, of appearances, earth, air, fire and water are divided between things that go down and things that go up. Earth and water naturally sink down, um, fire and air naturally go up. So it's the characteristic of the elements to go up or down. Um, above the moon, however, um, things don't go up and down, they go round and round. So they must be, depend on a different element, and this must be the fifth element, the quintessence. And that is um, Socrates, sorry, that's Aristotle's innovation. Luca Pacioli, the Franciscan, writing in 1509, this text, um, he called his text um, De Divina Proportione, the Divine Proportion, he conflated Aristotle and Plato, as so many Renaissance scholars did, and he associated those four regular solids with earth, air, fire, and water, but the dodecahedron he associated with the quintessence.
Plato, um, Aristotle's quintessence. And this was the heavenly um, regular solid, um, the divine regular solid, and you use the um, what we call the golden section, the divine proportion, to make a pentagon, and the dodecahedron is made up of 12 pentagons. That is heavenly beauty, that is the beautiful itself. And geometry here can't get it right. And I suggest that is the point of Dürer's irregular solid. He's struggled um, to define the beautiful. He's illustrating Socrates' struggle to define the beautiful. And his failure is represented by an irregular dodecahedron. So, um, that is the sort of problem you get when you try and put something which is pre-verbal or non-verbal <coughs> um, into words. And I remind you of Plato's um, statement in the Republic. He wants to banish Homer and the poets um, because people say they know everything, um, arete, um, excellence and badness, and the beautiful and the good, um, but they have knowledge and he can demonstrate that they don't have knowledge. <clears throat> Aristotle um, then writes his poetics, or he leaves us his poetics, his account of poetry. He doesn't banish the poets. He doesn't leave them outside the city gate like um, Plato and Socrates does. Um, he is more of a scientist. He describes things that take place in the here and now. He assumes that um, ancient tragedy has reached its mature form. So all he has to do is describe the structure of an ancient tragedy, and he's come up with a, a description of poetics. And his description, I won't show you that yet, um, is something which you're familiar with, even if you don't associate it immediately with um, Aristotle. Um, in the poetics, uh, Aristotle says, Tragedy is a division of ep epic, the most elevated poetic genre, since it treats with people better than ourselves. Comedy represents people who are worse. This is what Aristotle's great knack is. He, in, a, in a few words, he can distinguish one thing from another. Plot, he says, muthos, the myth, is central to tragedy, which is not a narrative like the Iliad and Odyssey, but a representation, a mimesis, and a representation not of people, but of action and of life. Through pity and fear, it accomplishes the purgation, the catharsis of those emotions. The audience's feelings are engaged by the transformation, metabasis, of good fortune to adversity. Um, Aristotle analyzes the structure of ancient tragedy, and this is what he writes up in his book, and this accurate description is a way that philosophers can deal with subjects such as poetry. What happened, of course, is that over time, um, Aristotle's description of current practice of a tragedy became a prescription for what a tragedy should look like. It became a set of rules. And in particular, in the 16th century, when it was translated into Italian um, by Ludovico Castelvetro, um, he titled, entitled his book La Poetica di Aristotele Vulgarizzato, translated into the Vulgate, 
Um, then Aristotle seemed to be giving rules for how you should write your, your tragedies, rules for poetry. Um, <clears throat> this is what Aristotle says in a different context about art. Um, art is produced when many notions of experience, of, uh, sorry, when many notions of experience, I'm getting muddled up now, how do I pass this? Thank you. Art is produced when, from many notions of experience, a single universal judgment is formed with regard to like objects. Lots of like objects, you have one universal deriving from it. Experience <coughs> is knowledge of particulars, but art of universals. Knowledge of universals becomes art. <coughs> so a body of knowledge is an art, what we might call a discipline. And this is what's passed on to the Middle Ages. The liberal arts, <coughs> the arts which free citizens, liberal citizens, um, have the time to cultivate, the trivium and the quadrivium, are bodies of knowledge. They can be put in books. And it is in monastic libraries that these liberal arts are preserved throughout the Middle Ages. And I want to briefly um, quote this rather charming passage from Cennino Cennini, even though he's writing about painting. Um, Cennini is trying to make painting responsible by giving it not so much a theory, but a theology. And he starts off by saying, Adam, he's been um, expelled from the Garden of Eden, recognizing the fault he had committed and been endowed so nobly by God as the root beginning and father of us all, realized from his scienza that it was necess necessary to find a means of living by his hands. And so he began with the spade and Eve with spinning. Adam delved and Eve span. Many arts provided for their many arts providing from the, for their necessity followed, which differed one from, from the other, since some were and are possessed of more or less scienza. So they could not all share the same rank, since scienza is the most worthy. Some arts are close descendants of scienza, requiring a grounding in it, combined with manual ability, and such as the arts called painting, which requires imagination and manual ability. So even though he's writing a book about painting, and he is a painter, he values scienza, which is the Latin word for knowledge. Knowledge has a primacy in, throughout the Middle Ages, and above all, knowledge written in books, and preferably books surviving from antiquity. Now that was going to be blown apart when Longinus's treatise on the sublime was translated into French. Um, this is a cover, a title page of um, Longinus's text, um, traduit du grec, directly from the Greek um, by Longin, you can see there. Um, the Greek text is perihupsos, on loftiness, it had been translated into Latin as on the sublime, and the French, and subsequently we adopted the Latin version of perihupsos. Um, Longinus, as I say, was, is a late antique work of literary criticism, um, written perhaps in the early centuries of the Christian era. And early on, um, he writes, we must begin by raising the question as to whether there is an art to sublimity or emotion. I'm following the Lerb translation, um, which I showed you with the green cover earlier on. 
whether there is an art to sublimity or emotion. For some think those are wholly at fault who try to bring su such matters under systematic rules. Genius, it is said, is born and does not come from teaching, and the only art for producing it is nature. Works of natural genius, so people think, are spoiled and utterly demeaned by being reduced to the dry bones of rule and precept. If you follow rules, if you do what Aristotle tells you when you're writing your plays, um, you're not going to achieve the sublime. And the sublime is what um, Longinus is writing about, and he says this is the important thing to achieve. However, when you look at the Greek, you realize that this is a translation, and translations are always compromises. Um, Longinus writes, this is an alternative translation, we must begin by raising the question as to whether there is an art to loftiness or profundity. Hupsos e bathos. I think Longinus is offering us two extremes. For some think that those who try to reduce it to technical training are wholly deceived. A great nature, to megalofue, they say, is born gifted and not formed by teaching. Works of natural ability, tafusika erga, natural works, so they think, are spoiled and utterly demeaned by the dry, impoverishing rules of art. And you look at the Greek word, which we've translated here as the rules of art, and it is technologias, technology. Techne is art, Greek word for art. Logos is the word for words. So um, an account of an art um, is um, a technology is an account of an art. It's what you would read in a book. Um, Longinus refers to his own book as technology. So on the one hand, you've got arts that can be put in a manual. You can write them up in a book. And on the other hand, loftiness and profundity, the sublime, cannot be pinned down in that way. And here I think you have the modern distinction between art aiming at the sublime, and technology, which is a manual of instruction. I don't think it existed before this. You look back at the previous translation, uh, and you don't get that. Um, technology um, is disguised by the dry bones of rule and precept. It introduces the word genius, and at this early date, genius simply meant a spirit. It's the Latin word for a spirit. Um, you have to be very careful um, translating an ancient text, not to modernize it to the point that you lose its essential meaning. Um, before this, you had the liberal arts, the, the um, things that you learned at school and university that we've just mentioned, and you had the mechanical arts, things that you did with your hands. Now we've got a new definition, a new distinction, between what is going to be the fine arts and technology. Arts that can be put in a book and arts that can't. Um, Longinus carries on. The sublime and I'm using a, an 18th century translation here, is a certain eminence or perfection of language, and the greatest writers, both in verse and prose, have by this alone obtained the price of glory, and filled all time with their renown. For the great nature not only persuades, but even throws an audience into transport, into ecstasy. It's probably what you're feeling at the moment. <laughs> 
The marvellous always works with more surprising force than that which barely, barely persuades or delights. But the, but the sublime, when seasonably addressed with a rapid force of lightning, has borne down all before it. Once fine artists had the prospect of achieving the sublime and sweeping an audience or their public along um, and putting them into ecstasy, surely this is what every fine artist would want to do. And later on, towards the end of the treatise, Longinus writes, those other inferior, inferior beauties show their authors to be men, but the sublime makes near the approaches near approaches to the height of God. What is correct and faultless comes off barely without censure, but the grand and lofty command admiration. What can I add further? One exalted and sublime sentiment in those noble authors makes ample amends for their defects. Now, I think this had a great impact on the way um, English writers of, um, about Shakespeare and about French drama um, interpreted Shakespeare. Shakespeare made lots of faults according to Aristotle's rules in the Poetics. Um, reading Longinus, they suddenly realized that Shakespeare's making those faults um, meant that he was above them. It wasn't that he was inept, it was he, he was aspiring to the sublime. And the person who does that needs a new name. And this is where Roger de Peel um, comes in. Um, Roger de Peel had um, lived in Venice and he was keen on Venetian painting. And he started to write books about painting. Um, he wrote a book on Dialogue sur le Colori, and that was very um, important. And a second book, which you can see here, the Traité du Peintre Parfait. And Roger de Peel had to tackle the rules of painting. <clears throat> um, in the Florentine tradition, drawing had a priority in producing a painting. You learnt your perspective and you learnt to draw um, with crisp outlines and your painting was in effect colouring in shapes that you had defined with your drawing. And Michelangelo was the supreme example of this. This is Michelangelo's Donitondo, um, about 15 five or ten, something like that. And you can see that it's in a complex, uh, the, the Madonna's in a complex foreshortened um, position and all her features are crisply outlined. It's almost like sculpture itself. So this is the Florentine approach to painting with drawing as the, the priority. Um, the Venetians, on the other hand, um, above all exemplified with the work of Titian, had learned the new technique of oil paint on canvas. And oil paint, as opposed to um, tempera or fresco, could paint over what you had painted before. So you didn't have to define crisply a shape and then fill it in with color. You could roughly outline the shape and gradually give it definition, painting over what you had painted before. And instead of the overall shape being the unit of the um, painting, the brush stroke becomes the unit of the painting. I don't know if you can see it, this is Henri Quatre um, falling in love with Marie de Medici or with her picture. Um, he's smitten, you can see, completely besotted. Um, and um, this is Rubens who painted like Titian and Rubens is building it up with individual brush strokes. 
And in the French Academy of the 17th century, there was this debate between colour and drawing. And should they follow the official line, the, the academic line, of making a priority of drawing, starting with perspective and crisp outlines, or they, should they um, adopt a coloristic approach? And Roger de Peel had lived in Venice. He was a champion of colour. So when he read Longinus um, saying that you could abandon rules and you achieve the sublime when you abandon rules, this was exactly what he needed to battle with um, the academic championing of disegno. So this is Roger de Peel in 1699. Genius, this is the first time we encounter this word applied to visual art as opposed to just being a spirit, le, le génie. Genius is the first thing we must suppose in a painter. For this inner light of the spirit, which is nothing other than genius, showing us always the shortest and easiest route, and invariably guiding us happily, both as to means and ends. The painter or the poet who followed Longinus in aspiring for the sublime and discarding the rules of past practice or the rules taught in academies or taught by books um, acquired his new label, that of a genius, at this point. Key moments in the history of um, our understanding of art. <coughs> Um, a generation later, um, Alexander Baumgarten picks up on this debate. There's a large literature in 18, early 18th century Paris about these matters, and he decides that, um, I'm going to try and quote him accurately now, there's a rational perfection, and, there's, um, and that's identified by reason, and there's a different perfection in perceived phenomena which is not rational. The whole point is that it's not rational, and that is what strikes us as beauty. So we have rational perfection in mathematics, in logic, um, in the field of symbolic notation, and we have an aesthetic perfection, which, we noted, which strikes us as beauty, which cannot be reduced to reason, to verbal formulations. And that established the um, philosophical discipline of aesthetics. Um, Winkelmann then wrote his history of the art of antiquity, Geschichte der Kunst des Altertums, which you see here, introduces the word art as a shorthand for sculpture and for the visual arts. Um, Kant comes along, picks up on all these ideas, plus other texts which we haven't got time to look at. This is Kritik <coughs> der Urteilskraft, his Critique of Judgment, 1790. And it's here that we find set out for the first time so many of our modern assumptions about art. Um, I'm obviously having to paraphrase because we've got very little time, but um, one of the things which upset Kant is that people have different, different judgments of taste, and we might say different judgments of quality. Some people like this and some people like that. And the 18th century view is that there should be a, a, an objective taste, if I can put it that way, which educated people should all agree on. And that didn't seem to be the case, so this was the problem for which Kant was seeking a solution. And he does it with statements such as this. 
he distinguishes the agreeable from the good from a judgment of taste. The agree agreeable refers to the pleasure we feel in our senses. <clears throat> we incline towards these gratifying sensations, so we have an interest in them. These pleasures do not engage with the concept, so they are subjective. Everyone is judge of his own taste. <clears throat> you like <clears throat> sugar in your coffee? I don't. You like plain chocolate, I like milk chocolate, or the other way around. Everyone is their own judge. That's the agreeable. A liking for the good is also interested, but it is brought under the principles of reason by the concept of a purpose. We are concerned with the continuing existence of some good. Our judgment is coloured by our interest, so is not free. Um, we see this beautiful painting and we want to own it and it's very valuable and it colours our perception. We think it's even better than it perhaps is, um, objectively. <clears throat> and lastly, his judgment of taste, um, he claims is merely contemplative. So it is entirely disinterested and free. Unlike the good, taste is not based on concepts in the understanding. So it is the dis disinterested and free judgment that becomes the aesthetic judgment. The judgment that everyone should agree on because you've got, you don't bring your own agenda to judging it. Um, line and colour and pattern, if all personal interest is removed, we should be able to agree on that. And Kant goes on to introduce many new things. He borrows from the French literature le génie, and he uses the French term for genius. It didn't exist in German, um, or at least um, the German um, Geist is the spirit, um, just as the Latin genius is the spirit, but he doesn't use that, he uses the French word génie. Um, and Kant writes, genius is a talent for producing something for which no determinate rule can be given. Hence, the foremost property of genius must be originality. Now, what a portentous statement that was. Um, we can disagree on whether this painting or sculpture or architecture or building is beautiful or not, but it's much easier to agree whether it's original or not. <clears throat> Um, from this point, it was much easier for fine artists to go for originality rather than to go for what was beautiful and good. And over time, you eventually sacrifice what was beautiful and good for the sake of originality. And originality now is the unthinking criteria of praise. You praise something as very original, even if it's horrible. Um, if it's very original, this is plus, plus, plus. <clears throat> Um, now, Kant realizes there's some problems here. Nonsense also can be original, so the products of genius must also be models. They must be exemplary. Other people must pick up on your works, your original works, and they should um, follow them. They should start a tradition, so they are less of a genius than you are because they haven't come up with original works. Um, Genius itself cannot describe or indicate scientifically how it brings about its products, and it is rather as nature that it gives the rule. It cannot rationally explain um, its creations. And lastly, nature through genius prescribes the rule not to science, but to art. And this only, this also only insofar as the art is to be fine art. Um, 
genius is the distinctive activity of someone producing fine art. We no longer restrict genius in that sense. Um, you know, we think of Isaac Newton and Einstein as geniuses. Um, Kant would exclude those because they're scientists and they should be able to explain rationally um, their um, discoveries, their mathematical formulations. This potent um, philosophical statement over time became not a description of what fine artists do, it became a prescription for what they should do. You should be original, you should be exemplary, and you shouldn't have to explain what you do to anyone. Um, Hegel uh, comes along a generation later. Um, these are the two um, volumes that you could take for your summer holiday reading. <coughs> um, he introduces a number of new ideas. We've already seen his distinction between Kunstwissenschaft, the science of particularities, and the philosophy of fine art. Um, he also introduces his very potent concept of the, um, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. He is a Neoplatonic philosopher. He goes to Plato's ideas, which he sees being realized over history. The spirit is um, manifesting itself over history. It, what, you, you have to understand the background of Hegel's thinking for it to make sense. But it's an important statement he makes here. Further, every work of art belongs to its own time, its own people, its own environment, and depends on particular historical and other ideas and purposes. Consequently, scholarship in the field of art demands a vast wealth of historical and, and indeed very detailed facts. Since the individual nature of the work of art is related to something individual and necessarily re requires detailed knowledge for its understanding and explanation. This was the task of the new generation of art historians. First chair of art history established in Berlin, I think in 1840 or something like that. Um, in Oxford it happened um, 20 years ago or something, very recently. Um, this is an important statement because um, Hegel is telling us that in the Middle Ages, in the, in the 12th century, you have to judge the creations of the 12th century on its own terms, not against some classical ideal or any other ideal um, of a particular um, later period. You, you, can't, you mustn't work anachronistically. And I end with um, this figure. <laughs> This is a photograph which is all over the place on the internet. If you Google um, Zenon the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance of Robert M. Persig, this is the photograph that you will come up with. Um, I've tried to trace it. Um, it's, it has been attributed to David Brill and to the National Geographic. And I've been in correspondence with the Na National Geographic and they claim not to have any record of it and I can't um, trace David Brill, so um, I want to show you the photograph because I think it's a brilliant photograph. Um, Robert Persig, in his um, reintroduction to quality to contemporary discourse, Arete, the concept that um, Socrates and Plato made inaccessible to us because they wanted to define it. And you can't define quality any more than you can define 
beauty or the, the beauty of your beloved's face or the beauty which has to include a Nimrod aircraft as well as your beloved's face. That's as big that your definition has to be. Um, Persig is the person who's told us that it is a pre-verbal judgment. And it's a judgment that unites subject and object, um, the perceiver and the perceived, and it's the relationship that beauty is describing. So you, you can't expect to, to pin it down. And in my judgment, there's only been two useful critics of um, Plato, really profound critics of Plato. The first was Aristotle, um, who changed a top-down version of his metaphysics to a bottom-up version. That's simply a different way of approaching. And the second, for my money, is Robert M. Persig, who said um, quality is not a problem as long as you don't try and pin it down. We all know what a good cup of coffee is. We all know what um, a nice bar of chocolate is when you're hungry. And uh, an sea rescue plane means when you're um, marooned uh, and tossed about on the waves. It's only when you try and pin it down that it disappears. Um, having returned um, quality to um, intellectual discourse, I think a lot of the problems which philosophical aesthetics were trying to address simply are not problems any longer. Um, we don't need that baggage. We can refer to a particular work of art um, against the tradition in which it, from which it emerged. <clears throat> and that is going to be the subject of our last talks, our last talk this afternoon, um, quality in the canon. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <clears throat>